I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast once again, as ever, humble, loyal, here as ever, your host, Matt Dixon. I want to start today by talking about an email I received from today's guest. It was just over two years ago, and it was one of the strangest requests for coaching I'd ever got. It went something like this. Dear Matt, I'd love to have a conversation with you about coaching. But the truth is, I'm quite sure that you might not want to actually coach me. My interest was piqued. Not many athletes reach out and undersell themselves as grossly as Chris Mosier did. But after I'd spoken to Chris first started to become clear. Chris Mosier was transgender. Well, in the years that have passed, Chris has continued his own athletic progression and actually become an incredibly strong athlete. He's become the first transgender athlete to represent the US in a world championships. And on top of that, he's also become a good mate, but also one of the athletes that I'm most proud to have been able to coach. An advocate, an inspiration to many, and a highly interesting story of performance in itself. Today, we're going to dig into his history, the journey through school, the process of transition, and ultimately, transition into an elite male athlete. You won't want to miss it, but first, we're going to talk about Norseman 2018. Yes, you might remember just a few weeks ago a competition that we launched. On behalf of the Victory Advisors Foundation, in conjunction with Purple Patch, we were going to give one lucky recipient a guest entry into this year's Norseman Triathlon. Norseman is quite simply a legendary race. It's extremely tough to gain entry, let alone compete, and it's known as the toughest iron distance race in the world. Frigid waters of the Norwegian fjords, a cold and often wet and windy hilly bike course, and then a mentally and physically energy-sapping challenging marathon to finish, which includes scrambling over rocks to finish the race. It is a true test of what they call that iron will. Well, before I begin, a note, this whole event and competition would not be possible without Victory Advisors. Via their foundation, they're providing the spot and all of the support for the lucky athlete. And we, Purple Patch, are going to help the athlete get ready. We're going to help them on their quest. Lots more to come on Victory in the coming weeks. But now, let's talk about the entries and the winner. I have to say we were overwhelmed. We asked some entrants that had some really powerful reasons to be considered, and I can promise you we weren't disappointed. Several times in reading the entries we were close to tears, but this year there can only be one winner. Don't worry, if you didn't win the spot this year, go at it again next year, because I promise you you inspired us. But this year I want to announce, someone give me a drum roll, the winner is... Gear Helga Stormark. Well done, Gear. We're going to reach out to you and get cracking, but we're going to have to bring you onto the show and discuss your plans for the race, your story, which is quite unbelievable, and much, much more. But until then, I encourage you, get planning and get training, because you've got a lot to get done, my friend. But now, let's go to the word of the week. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wind. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. All right, troops, as is tradition, word of the week this week, but I want to go with a quick one this week because it is, as you can already tell, a very busy show. The word of the week this week is personal. Yes, make it personal. This is a quick message for you to help with perspective and focus, particularly if you're one of those people that is very goal-driven. If you want to win a world championship, make it as a pro athlete, podium or win a race, qualify for the Hawaii Ironman, complete your first marathon, beat your best time or place, or simply cross the finish line for the first time in an event, I'm here to tell you, don't obsess about outcomes. Avoid thinking about short-term results, and don't overly focus about your competition or others. Focus all on you. Your whole journey should be anchored about thinking about you and your performance. How can I improve? What are my weaknesses? Am I involving 
And am I improving? What can I learn? How do I grow? And then race my best performance. All of these become your primary focus. And yes, when it comes time and you're in the fog of racing, you can apply your best resources to compete, but it's all secondary to you preparing the best that you can do in the best way for you and then racing your best race to improve your performance. This is controllable. And guess what? It's also liberating. And by the way, it's also going to be much more fulfilling and really enjoyable. So yeah, you can have big goals, but if you anchor your love of the journey and passion for competition in becoming the best that you can be, the results and the goals are going to take care of themselves. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. It's all getting a little queer this week. All right, guys, yes, this is the meat and potatoes. And today we have a special guest, a purple patch athlete. And by all definitions, I would define him as a trailblazer. And we're going to get into that when I talk about his bio. But first, I want to welcome you, Chris. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Good stuff. Chris Mosier is a purple patch athlete. I would say that is the most important thing. <laughs> but uh, but we're going to go through your bio and it's going to give you, give listeners a little bit of an indication. So beyond being the founder of transathlete.com, I want to go through you are in 2015, you were the first openly trans man to make the men's U.S. national team. And following that, you were instrumental in getting the International Olympic Committee policy on transgender athletes changed. And then in 2016, you became the first trans athlete to compete in a world championship under those new rules. And beyond that, were the second fastest American man in your group. You've been called by the BBC News, as well as New York Magazine, the man who changed the Olympics. You're a five-time member of Team USA, representing the US in sprint triathlon, short course and long course duathlon, which of course is a run-bike-run event. And I think well beyond your athletic accomplishments, I think what you're doing for the LGBTQ population is absolutely fantastic. You've been inducted into the National Gay and Lesbian Sports Hall of Fame. You are a nationally recognized four-time Ironman triathlete and currently sponsored by Nike. And for those people that enjoyed watching the Olympic Games, they might be able to cast their memory back to 2016 because you were in a very popular Nike commercial at that time. You've been featured in publications including ESPN Magazine, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone Esquire, and you're joining us today from the Olympic Training Center. Thank you for joining us. It's, it's always weird to hear someone talk about me like, like that. So thanks for the, the complete intro. <laughs> now, I, I, I didn't think that um, it was a complete intro, but I, but I think it's important. Typically, we won't go through everything in the bio. And in fact, there's more in your bio. But I wanted to do that. But you're, um, you're for this week, based out of the Olympic Training Center. I didn't think that they, um, they allowed your sort in that sort of... Uh, <laughs> That sort of thing, you know, it's um, lazy, weak of mind, not very talented, you know, all of that stuff. But but they seem to snuck through the gates a little bit, eh? I absolutely did. I absolutely did sneak in. Um, I actually was here speaking about LGBTQ issues with the uh, Olympic Committee and got the opportunity to train here for the last week, which has been really cool. What what a fabulous experience, eh? It's uh, it's pretty special out there. Well, well, let's 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 get into our conversation because I think this is going to be inspiring empowering and I hope educational we've been working together for a few years now but before we dive into the purple patch coaching our relationship and what we've learned with performance this podcast is about performance I think we have to go all the way back and I like guests to go through their childhood their upbringing their education and stuff like that but in your case I think it's really, really pertinent and important. So, so over to you. I want you to start at the start. Let's go through your childhood, where you grew up, your family. Give us a little bit of insight into, into you. Yeah, sure. So I grew up outside of Chicago, 
in a small suburb in the Northwest, um, Northwest of Chicago. And I had at that time, one younger brother, uh, I'm the oldest now of three. And my second brother was born actually when I graduated high school. So we didn't really grow up together. Um, but I, I had a, a like a, a great childhood in terms of being, ath- being athletic, um, being a part of my community, being a part of my neighborhood. And from my memory, basically, all we did was play outside. And so from a very young age, and I would say like from the age of four, if you would ask me to describe myself in three words, it would be athlete, competitive, and then something else like Ninja Turtle or whatever I was into <laughs> at that time. Like it changes all the time. But um, even to today, I would say that those are two very important pieces of my identity, being an athlete and being competitive, which I think really plays into my story about coming out of understanding my identity as a trans man and sort of how I navigated that system. So I grew up playing girls and women's sports. I started with T-ball and at the age of four and went to baseball. Softball was really my big sport. Uh, it was just something that was very popular in my community. Um, and I was a, a great softball player all the way through high school, three sport, all conference athlete in high school, volleyball, basketball, and softball. Um, I actually don't think that I've ever told you this, but I had a, a very bad um, running experience actually when I was in school. I tried to do cross country in junior high mm-hmm. and I helped, um, I helped the team just kind of fill a space, but I actually didn't know you were supposed to take your warm ups off and it was cold outside. So I, I ran the whole race in my, like in my sweatsuit basically. Um, and I got lost on the course and it was a one-time deal. <laughs> actually, I, I ran one race. Um, so running really wasn't my thing at that time. Uh, going into college, my dream was to have my name on the back of a Jersey. Uh, thought basketball was going to be the path to making that happen. And so I was looking at schools to play ball at. And then when it sort of came down to it, I decided not to play basketball. I, I decided uh, that that school was more important. I decided that I really wanted to be involved in extracurricular activities and that I had to work to pay my way through school as a first-generation college student. But I had a ton of excuses, but really now looking back, what it was, was that I didn't want to be on a girls' team. And I would say my whole junior high and high school experience, I didn't have the the language or the terminology to say I was transgender. I, I didn't identify as transgender at that time. I didn't know anyone who was transgender. And quite honestly, even through high school, I didn't know anyone who was gay or lesbian or bisexual. And so I feel like I had a very limited experience in that regard. Well, and it was it was indicative of the time. It was much less transparent, much less spoken about. Uh, much more hidden, I would say. I mean, it wasn't 50 years ago, but it was still um, a, a very different sort of environment than we certainly find ourselves in today. But but I guess hiding on on that, you you if you sort of reflect on that time, you knew something, yeah? As you were playing, you were really athletic, you were playing in these ball sports. But as you just suggested... You went to university. I think you went to Northern Michigan University. Is that right? Yep, that's right. And, and then uh, uh, you you had these aspirations and dreams to go and play college basketball. You didn't. But, I mean, you've told me before, you had these excuses, these reasons why not. But ultimately, you realized you didn't want to be on a women's team. And um, so that, that must have been a... a challenging when, when did that when did that sort of start to really sort of come up in your psyche up in your consciousness it must have been a long time sort of subconscious and 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 as you develop into a into a if effectively from a girl to a woman uh it, it, at that time you know it's um how did that how did that bubble up for you yeah i think you you nailed it in saying it was a different time and you know there were no positive representations of trans people in the media so it really wasn't even on my radar which i think you know, now as an adult, um, yesterday marked eight years on testosterone for me. So I celebrated my rebirthday, or I like to call it my maniversary. <laughs> maniversary, uh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was yesterday, and, and so you know, I think um, you know now we've seen a, a lot of representation, and people understand what the word transgender means, but it wasn't even on my radar. But I can I can say that my internal feelings about myself have always been the same. 
So from four years old, running around in my backyard with my shirt off and having you know, my aunt pull me around the back of the house, say, you, you can't run around like that. Little girls can't run around with their shirts off. And I didn't get it. I remember, you know, in hindsight, situation after situation of um, being an androgynous kid and, and being more attracted to wearing boys clothes like my brother and, um, you know, doing things that were stereotypically masculine and kind of wanting to play with the boys. And um, I think that's OK for kids in you know, it's okay for young girls to do that in our society because we call them tomboys and we say, oh, she's athletic. That's just the way she should be until she hits puberty. And then that's supposed to change, right? You're supposed to um, follow a different set of stereotypical, um, you know, gender presentation and gender roles and things like that. And I, I never, I never went that way. And so I think, you know, I um, never, I, I honestly, I never saw a future for myself when I was a kid. Like, I was thinking about this yesterday that I never could picture myself as an adult because I thought I was going to grow up to be a man. And then when puberty sort of came on my radar, I was like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> and, and I remember just like praying that I wouldn't get a period and like, you know, praying that I wouldn't go, uh, that, that puberty wouldn't hit me like it was hitting other girls in my class. And, you know, thinking that that was puberty is an awful time for any young person, but, but to feel like you're going down the wrong path, I think is extra challenging. Um, I didn't, I think it's important to say, I didn't feel like I was trapped in the wrong body. And that's a narrative that is true for some transgender people, but that wasn't my experience. I just knew that I wasn't like the other girls in my class. And at the same time, I knew that I wasn't a little boy. And so I just really felt like I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't have the language to to assign to my identity, but I always felt the same about myself. That's and so like my transition, like understanding transition, going through it as an adult was really just in a lot of ways to align the way that other people saw me with the way that I see myself and the way that, you know, the reflection in the mirror to match up with the way that I internally feel. Well, I, I want to talk about your transition because I think it's, I think it's really important for listeners to understand. I think some people perceive it that suddenly there, there's this process, there's a decision, and then someone flips a light switch. Da da! You know, I'm I'm transitioning. It's um, it, it's like the grand reveal, the dress rehearsal, and then it's the. But as you recount this, I want I want to, I want to, I want you to sort of recount your process of transition uh, because I think it's, it's really interesting and important to understand. But before you do. I want listeners to to think about a single year in their life and everything that happens in a year, all the good, the bad, the challenges, no matter what side of your life is, each year is packed with experiences. And and for you, and, and probably for, for many or most transgender people, this is a multi-year journey that you went through. And so I, I just want people to sort of think about the length of a year uh, as you are telling us your story and journey through the uh, the transition. So, so give me the the timeline and uh, and the process. Really start where you feel is most appropriate, I guess. Yeah, I think it's important to frame this up in saying that I am a case study of one, right? Like I can only speak to my own experience, and I can only say that there's no one singular way to be a transgender person. And I think that's really important when hearing my story because. There are certainly other athletes who have my story, other trans people who have a similar journey. But being trans doesn't mean that there's a checklist of things that you have to check off in order to transition. Transition can look a variety of ways for anybody. And there are a lot of factors that play into it. And just like for the little educational piece here, as it, as it pertains to transgender athletes, there are different places that we can play based on the point at which we are in transition. So there's a social transition, which would mean someone would change their name or their pronouns, um, their style of dress, their the way they talk, their mannerisms, things like that. Um, also, the access to gendered spaces, so using a restroom or a locker room, things like that. Mm -hmm. There are medical transitions, which would mean taking cross-hormone therapy. So for me, uh, taking testosterone for a transgender woman, so someone who is assigned male at birth who's transitioning to uh, who identifies as a woman, um, that would be testosterone suppression and estrogen treatment. And then that might also include surgeries, uh, gender affirming surgeries. And then there's the legal transition of changing documents and things like that. So to be a transgender athlete, you can participate in different 
classifications depending on where you at where you were at, and mostly that's based around hormones. So all of this was sort of in my mind. You know, um, transition is not a singular experience. It's not like yes, I transitioned. You know, check. I feel like um, transition for me is going to be a lifelong process because I'll be taking testosterone forever. So. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of to, to lay it out there, I am a case study of one, but like to bring it back to my athletic journey, I think that um, I I really missed playing sports in college. So you know, as I said, I didn't want to play on a women's team. So I pulled out of sports, of the organized team sports, and I uh, was playing recreational stuff like ultimate frisbee and soccer and volleyball, anything that was co-ed that I didn't have to kind of put myself in this strictly female space. And again, there was no indication that I was trans at that time. Like, no, I had no understanding of this. Um, I was also dating men at this time, um, you know, I, which I, I, I would still date a dude now. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I identify as queer. So, um, but, you know, I think anything LGBTQ was not on my radar at that time. Um, so certainly through through high school, through junior high, none of this was even within you know, my understanding of myself. Um, I think sports plays an important role here because I really miss the connection that I had in the way that I found friends and community through sport as a, as a youth when I was in college. And so, you know, not having that team environment, um, you know, was really hard for me because that was where I found friends, no matter how weird people thought that I was in the neighborhood or like how, how strange of a kid people thought I was, they always liked me and valued me because I was a good athlete and a good teammate and a good leader. And so, you know, the athletic fields of play were really where I felt the most comfortable. So I wanted to get back to that to sort of reconnect with myself and reconnect with community after college. And I started sort of doing that through running. Um, it was a way that I could do something sort of by myself with other people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, and it was, um, the, there were fewer barriers there for me because I, after college is when I really started to, to question my identity. So it was really that losing my identity as a college student, as a student leader, as someone who was on the radio and like, um, you know, worked at the newspaper, all of the the little micro identities that I had as a college student leader were then gone. And I had to really think about who am I as a person and what do I want to do with my life? And I started to really think about parts of my identity that I had put off by being so busy in school. And so sort of came up in parallel with competing in athletics. Um, I started running um, and worked my way up through the different races. And so for me, it was really about pushing my body. I had two mini strokes in my last year of school and was sort of pushed out of athletics for you know, a year or so of recovery from that. And running was my way to sort of see what I could do with my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just 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 to pause with the with the mini strokes was that do you think uh, an indicator of emotional stress and turmoil, uh, physiological stress, or, or who knows? Probably all of the above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, it was one of those things that certainly as a college student I wasn't taking great care of myself. Um, but I also think it was probably something about not seeing a future for myself as well. That it wasn't necessarily intentionally negligent of care. But it, there was this, you know, in, in looking back on it now, I can, and I'm just kind of talking through this right now, but I, it's probably something about not feeling, not feeling valued, not feeling worthwhile of celebration or of being alive or of, you know, having a good life. And I think, I think I was struggling with all of that and just didn't have outlets to talk about it. Um, and then, you know, just the typical staying up too late and, um, not not drinking enough water, not having enough rest. Like I, I think there was an accumulation of all of that on top of the um, emotional and uh, you know stress that I was feeling. And, and you um, you started initiating transition, uh, but, but two thousand eight, two thousand nine, yeah. But um, but you're 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 married now, uh, and you met your partner earlier than that, yeah. You've, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I met my now wife in 2001, and it, I think this was also part of it, you know, in, in having a, a complicated story, as we all do, that I also identify as queer. And at that time, when I met her, had never 
never dated a woman, never thought about dating a woman. And she was just a really special person. And I think I, I instantly um, fell in like with her. <laughs> it took me a long time to fall in love with her or to say, to admit that I was in love with her. But um, part of that, I think, was the fact that I didn't have any queer people in my life. I didn't know, uh, I didn't know any gay people who were treated positively. And I, and I just didn't have personal connections with people in the LGBTQ community. Um, so I was very afraid of what my, you know, love for this woman meant for me. Um, and at the same time, I didn't identify as a woman. I, I, I didn't identify as trans. I didn't identify as a man, but I just didn't feel a very strong affiliation with being a woman. And so when we were first together, I found it extremely frustrating when people would call us lesbian couple because that didn't didn't fit for me. And I think it was actually through that experience of people seeing our relationship that I started to learn more about how gender really sat on my body and how uh, it felt so uncomfortable for people to identify me in that way. And and so when did you start to, for lack of a better phrase, start to figure it all out? Because I know you went, you went to some therapy, yeah, I think 2007 or so, by, by my memory. Is that when you started to sort of figure this process out or or start to i mean, I mean it's like an, an organizational nightmare isn't it chris it's <laughs> but, <laughs> so so my wife was really uh you know a huge factor in this she just had a very um good understanding of of what it means to love people and to have the the flexibility and the um courage to to be oneself um, she is a cisgender woman, so assigned female at birth. Um, she's not trans. And, you know, she knew a lot about the trans community. And I think it was clear for her to see some of what I was struggling with in terms of my understanding of myself and to sort of lead me to talking to someone about it. Um, and I think, you know, I couldn't, it was the, the greatest blessing to have the support of someone um, who loved me in that way, because a lot of people lose their relationships when they go through transition because people don't understand and you know, of course. It, how does it impact her and you know for her it was very much like my identity is not um the sole factor in how she identifies and so she is a strong independent woman and was you know totally comfortable with me just being my best self um, so it was really after college after a few years of being in a relationship with her that she led me to see someone and therapy was extremely helpful because it was all this stuff that I just never thought about all of those experiences that I shared of like why I ditched the basketball team and you know what it meant for me as a little kid to be told that I couldn't do certain things because of um, that's not what little girls did and you know all of these experiences that I had that were informing how I thought I should be acting which was not in line with how I knew myself really to be and and fast forward uh to the decision because because there is ultimately a decision yet yeah, i am going to transition so, so when was that so the well the actual decision i think was a long time in the making in terms of um actually saying yes i'm going to start a physical transition um the moment that i that i sort of put it all together was my birthday uh when i was turning 29 my wife and i were at uh restaurant and in new york city super loud very crowded um you know sitting at a table together just the two of us because i did not like to celebrate my birthday it was i didn't feel i was worthy of celebration i didn't want to tell people when my birthday was i didn't want people to you know celebrate me in any way and so we had a very small private tradition of just going somewhere for eat um so the waiter came up to us and I don't even really remember, but I think they must have said, okay, ladies, can I take your order? And I ordered my food, but then when that person walked away, I just burst into tears and it was uncontrollable. Um, I, I couldn't catch my breath. I was so completely overwhelmed and I couldn't even speak to her to tell her what it was about because I, I don't know that I really knew. I had to leave the restaurant walked outside on the busy street of New York city and crumbled on the sidewalk, like just sobbing uncontrollably. It went on for the the time that, well, we waited for the burritos of course, but then went, went home and it, you know, it wasn't until I got home that I could actually just, you know, utter the words. I never thought my life would be this way. And for me, what that was is like, I could not imagine having another birthday as the person that I was. 
because I knew it was so inauthentic. It was so untrue. It was so hiding parts of myself. And it was just the fear, I think, up to that point. You know, it probably took me years to get to that point to have that sort of breakthrough um, to say, like, I really need to do something about this now because I'm having a hard time navigating the world as I am every day. It, 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 by the way, I have to say, I feel a little sorry for the waiter. Pretty innocent, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but pretty powerful. Um, so when when was the first when when was the first surgery and um, and hormonal testosterone essentially? When, when, you know, so it was birthday was when, when was when is your birthday? I'm not sure when it is. Is it towards the end of the year? Yeah. So my birthday is in August, but um, I you know I think at that point then it took. Um, it's not just a you know, okay, let's do this sort of process. It takes doctor's appointments and, um, you know, a lot of planning to, to understand. And for me, even at that point, when I, I had that breakthrough and I still wasn't sure how I was going to transition because I didn't want to lose my ability to compete in sport. Like to bring this back to the sporting piece, I did that marathon. After I did a marathon, I did an ultra marathon, and this is competing as female. And my next sort of way to push my body sort of post-stroke was I'm going to buy a bike. I'm going to teach myself how to swim. I'm going to become a triathlete. I volunteered at the New York City Tri, so I had a free entry the following year. So I had one year to sort of work my way up to it. Um, and you know, I thought this would be a, a good way to push myself athletically and competed in that first race, won my category, thought, okay, this is the sport for me. Um, and I was really starting to get into it then. I mean, you know, winning your group in the first race is a good way to, to feel like it's a good sports builder. Yeah. And so I didn't want to give that up. And I, as I started doing better and better in both running races and triathlon, I didn't want to lose my ability to be a competitive athlete. And I think even knowing that I didn't fully identify as female and I well, didn't at all identify as female, but I wasn't sure if I could be a transgender man and compete with men. I had never seen it done before. I didn't know if it was possible based on the policies. And I and I wasn't at that time really ready to out myself to people to find out if I could compete. So it was over a year that I that I waited once, you know, I first understood myself to, you know, actually making the switch in in sports and also committing then to taking testosterone because as soon as a trans man takes one shot of testosterone, you know, he competes as a man which is what I wanted, but also wasn't sure that I could do. Sure. And, and so, so it, Oh, sorry. So, yeah, sorry. In, so, so when did you first compete as a man? In 2010, uh, Ironman Florida was my first race as male. And, and with that, I guess, how many people knew and what of the, I'm, I'm assuming not too many people knew, uh, at, at least of people that you would have sort of consistent dialogue with and, and what was their reaction? So within the sports world, I mean, only my teammates at that time knew it wasn't um, public information. I had not come out publicly yet. And, um, you know, at the, at the race, I would say probably no one knew. I didn't at that time, I didn't disclose to anyone. I just signed up as male. Um, I had had my driver's license um, changed. So I had no problem um, getting, you know, getting into the race um, or anybody checking me on my gender. Um, but I will say, based on my personal experiences, I will say that people did not know that I was trans and, and I had a volunteer as I crossed the line, you know, very, for me, a very challenging race because it was my first Ironman, um, you know, thinking through that run, what really got me through was thinking, you know, this isn't hard. I signed up for this. What's really hard is living my life every day as a trans person. That's hard. But, at, you know, an Ironman race, like the last 10 miles of an Ironman, that's easy compared to my daily experience. But when I crossed that finish line, a volunteer said, congratulations, you are an Iron Woman. And I was like, oh, just devastated. I mean, it was another, another experience of someone not seeing me the way that I saw myself. And I had been on testosterone for you know, several months at that time, but testosterone does not change one you know, immediately. And um, you know, that, that person, it meant no harm by it, but for me, it had a, a very... Uh, negative impact in terms of of that experience the, the personal experience exactly now i'm, I'm going to fast forward because you uh, I, I i guess when when did you come out 
as it were, because but because relatively soon, relatively quickly, you started doing advocacy work, and um, and you know, I think by 2012 you were invited to the White House as a as a LGBT emerging leader. So so when did that start? Was it shortly afterwards that you thought, you know, what I I need to not just do this as a personal journey, I need to do this as in the spirit of advocacy as well. Yeah, it really was that experience leading up to Ironman Florida and and through Ironman Florida of just seeing like feeling like I had no one that I could talk to about this and and that I was I I knew I wasn't the first transgender athlete like in the history of the world no <laughs> um in what I was trying to do at that time I couldn't find anyone else who was doing what I wanted to do and I think I often think that if I would have seen someone if I would have seen a trans man competing with men at a high level um, or a high amateur level, I, I would have been a game changer for me just to know that I could have competed. So it was really out of that experience. Right after Ironman Florida, I wrote an op-ed for The Advocate magazine, which is a LGBTQ uh, publication, mm-hmm. and came out as a trans athlete and shared my experience at Ironman Florida. And then in 2011, I competed in the New York City Triathlon again. And they, you know, in the sign up for all those races. They say, do you have anything interesting about you? And my story was very interesting because in 2009, I competed as female. In 2011, I came back to the race to compete as male. And I got featured in the New York Times uh, full page article, which was really, I think that was really when I decided that I needed to be more public and became okay with being the quote unquote transgender athlete. Like I knew that coming out was just a one-time thing in the media because the internet. <laughs> like I will never just be another triathlete. I will never just be another do athlete. Um, I'll never just be a regular dude. I will always be the trans athlete. Um, and it took me a long time to actually come to terms with that, I think, because part of me just wanted to be a regular guy. Just wanted to compete. <laughs> you know, yeah, I just yeah. want to compete, but it, it is the, uh, it is the burden that you carry. You know, it's also the privilege that you carry as well. Uh, so, so you made national team. I mean, when you started this journey, you probably had no real sort of consideration or aspirations of making a national team. Yet in 2015, Sprint Duathlon, there it was. Uh, and uh, so, so tell us that. Tell us the. Tell us sort of, I guess, quickly about the race. But I think coming out of that race, the the outcomes of that race is where it really starts to get interesting with IOC policy and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's all rooted out of that New York Times article too, because. What I read from it, and this is certainly one of those things that we remember the bad things and don't remember the 17 good things in it, <laughs> but the author of that article and the race director at that time, both the, the essence of what they said about me was that I would be a middle of the pack guy. And for me as a competitive athlete, the words middle of the pack and my name do not belong on the same page of the New York Times. <laughs> and mm-hmm. even, you know, even if that wasn't true in terms of my, my results at that time, that was the motivation. That was the spark. That is literally what drives me every single day to this day, <laughs> um, thinking about not being that middle of the pack guy. Um, and there's nothing wrong with middle of the pack folks, but for me, I didn't, that was not my aspiration in sport. Um, so I put a lot of, uh, a lot of effort then into thinking maybe I could be the first one to do this, to, to make a national team. A friend put it on my radar in 2014 and I actually didn't get my paperwork in time to compete in 2014. And so I had a full year of thinking about trying to make Team USA in Sprint Duathlon uh, for 2015. And it certainly is one of the only moments in my life that I've been speechless is crossing that finish line and looking at that paper to see that I actually made it. Because I had built this up not just as that sort of having my name on a jersey moment that I always wanted, but also knowing that this could be a real significant impact on the LGBTQ community for sports. Um, you know, in thinking how I wish that I had seen someone competing, this I thought would give me the opportunity to have that platform to be that person that I wish I had 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, to let people know that it is okay to compete in sports and be your authentic self. And to, to do that, to make a national team, uh, make you know this team, I think would have been that that was the moment for me that I thought would give me that platform. 
You know, I'm going to do a little, uh, a little personal reveal of, uh, of that inner motivation when you read sort of that negative stuff. So several years ago, there was a, an article and, and one of the quotes from a relatively well-known quote, a coach for somebody who uh, apparently I've never met, but was not a fan of mine. And, and the quote was, quote, Matt Dixon will never coach a world champion. And, uh, and it's funny, everything else, that, that, but somewhere inside of that, when Tim Reed won the world championship, I actually thought of that about eight years later. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> but, and, it, and maybe internally, I, I somehow remembered that and I never think about it at all. But, uh, now of course it's long gone, but, uh, but I understand. Mm-hmm. I only tell you that because I, I understand that, that catalyst of that's not who I am and I, I am going to do that. And of course, that's, it's still a personal journey, but those little things are, as human beings, they're funny how they can be catalysts and, uh, and little fire starters. But it's great. And if that's what it takes, that's, that's totally fine. I've actually talked to the author since then, uh, since making Team USA and we had a good conversation afterwards. And uh, he knows that he's my, um, you know, not so pleasant inspiration in my, in my work. So. It, it came full circle after I made the team. <laughs> that, that, that's awesome. Well, let's, let's come to us because we met in New York a few years ago uh, where I was actually doing a presentation around performance and you reached out for coaching. You, you decided that after, I, I think, following sort of my presentation and, and our brief conversation, one thing I really remember when you, you reached out to me was you, you emailed and said, I'd like to talk about coaching, but there was a caveat. And, uh, and you, you, you said something to the nature of, I'd really like to be coached, but I have to talk to you because you may not want to coach me. Uh, or mm-hmm. they might, you might have to heavily consider that. And, and I've always sort of, I've never asked you that. So I'm going to ask it to you now. Why, why you felt it was needed? And I can guess, of course, but why I quote might not be interested in coaching you. So I, I think it's, uh, well, I guess what were the emotions of asking for a coach and, why did you feel that was necessary? Yeah, I think this is a kind of funny part because, um, you know, full disclosure, Matt, you weren't my first choice. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm seldom anyone's first choice. I'm, I'm, was I in the top ten? Because I, uh, it's success if I'm ever in the top ten of, of uh, the last, last, the last ditch. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be honest with you, I think I had, I had, I had never had a coach before, um, before 2014, 2015, and I. Um, you know, thought at this time, like when I saw the opportunity on the horizon to potentially make Team USA and to to potentially, you know, be a groundbreaking trailblazing athlete, um, I thought maybe now's the time to get, you know, somebody else to help me out. Um, I had been using references from just people that I knew because I'd never had a coach, never thought seriously about having a coach. I have coaching certification, but we all know how self-coaching goes. <laughs> it mm-hmm. can be good or bad. Um, but I really was looking for that extra push. And, and when I connected with three other coaches before you of, um, and I would say two of them were high profile coaches. Um, one was not, but you know, that I had been connected to through other people. Um, I had one coach who seemed interested at first. And then when we talked about my identity as a trans man and how, if, you know, if I made Team USA, I would be challenging the International Olympic Committee policy. I would likely be in the media. It was probably going to be a big deal. And I had one not call me back and just totally drop communication. I had one coach tell me that I would be a liability and they couldn't be associated with me. And then an, another negative experience with the third one. So, you know, by the time I, I reached out to you after hearing you talk at finish line, I, um, you know, I was really nervous about talking to coaches and I had had this experience with sponsors and coaches of people not wanting to be affiliated with me uh, because of my identity, because they said that their brand or their, um, you know, their uh, name couldn't be associated with someone who identified as transgender. So, you know, I, I just felt like it was a real long shot to get you to even respond to me. I remember getting an email back and just kind of really being surprised actually <laughs> well it's interesting because you know i received your email as we go back to this and uh and had a conversation i mean that was the most important i had a comp and there were two things number one you're a nice guy and number two i looked at it as well unsurprisingly i've never coached a trans athlete before and i thought this is going to be a journey of of stretching me as a as a person and a coach and um and and out of being stretched you're going to learn and grow 
And so I, I felt like this was an opportunity for personal development as a coach because there's a whole bunch of stuff I didn't know. And, um, and that was the catalyst. It's like, wow, this is something really different and interesting that I've never done before. And I am sure by going through this journey, and by the way, I was absolutely uh, correct in this, it's going to help me. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, it's, um, it, it's a shame, but it was also a gift that, uh, that happened to you because, uh, it enabled me to learn and to grow. And, and I think that one of our first conversations that we had, I think is almost important to go through again. I had to understand. So rather than just accept or reject, I wanted to understand the situation. So I want to go through this again now. So I want to talk about the reality of your situation. And um, I just want to go through because I think this is, I think listeners need to understand the true facts of the situation and not perceptions, because I think this is important. So you are a trans male athlete. And one of the things that people have said to me over the, the years of coaching you is to say, well, you know, okay, I get it because it's quote female to male and that's really different than male to female. And, uh, but, and here's the key thing, but it's not still not really fair because he or they still get to get synthetic testosterone, yada, yada, yada. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, I want to go, but I want to go on the, the facts on that and, and talk about supplemental testosterone, et cetera, because I think this is absolutely critical to clear up. Um, so as a trans male athlete, and in your daily life, how frequently do you have testosterone injections? Firstly, just the, the, the regularity that they happen. Yeah, it's every 10 days for me. So every 10 days you're having, um, and we'll just focus on testosterone, but a, a testosterone injection. And mm-hmm. if, if you, what, what level does that bring you to? Uh, um, so it brings me to a quote unquote, typical male range. And so the way that it works is, is actually pretty interesting that, uh, because I do injections, um, you know, all of the testosterone goes into my body at once. And so there's this spike that happens at the top of the 10 days. And then essentially over the course of these 10 days, it just gets lower and lower and lower until I take another shot. Um, there are some people who do it like once a week. Um, and just like, this was what I found to be uh, sort of, you know, optimal for, for my levels, but, um, there is a, you know, pretty big swing. Like if I was tested on day one versus being tested on day nine, that range is going to be a huge difference. And, and the, the range at peak when we're talking about this, because the first jump that I think many will take is, Oh, I'm just going to have my testosterone injection the day before that I'm going to go and do a competition. Uh, and he's at a massive advantage, but the peak of that is, at most sort of normal healthy male period yeah and- right and and the it should be said that the normal range for cisgender men is huge the the actual range of of what is considered healthy is something like uh 500 and some points of you know of a range and so um even even cisgender men have a a wide range of testosterone numbers so but i never exceed that that's not you know, if I, I need to make sure that I'm within that in case I'm tested, which is one of actually the specifications of me being allowed to take testosterone is that I am subject to be tested at any point in time. And I have to keep a, a log of both my injections and also my, um, checkups. And so I need to be going to doctors to get blood work done at a regular interval so that I have all of those numbers should anything occur completely accessible and then towards the end of you know day eight day nine uh, your levels are dropping down towards the lower end or or off below sort of quote healthy i'm assuming um on those so there's there's a pretty dramatic drop off over the course of the just over a week duration yeah yeah and it's pretty interesting i you know i've, I've tried to track it over time of saying you know you said oh i could just take a shot and then go do a race and it really isn't like that big of a, of a difference in feeling fortunately for me it's not like i feel like superman on day one and feel like you know old man Mosier on day nine <laughs> i feel pretty much the same and i can i can notice like small um you know s- small changes maybe in my energy level or mood maybe as i'm getting close to a shot but 
um, I don't feel superhuman after, you know, I'm not seeing, and I, and I'm not seeing athletic performance differences on day one versus day nine of any given cycle. Uh, and I've, I've certainly never seen anything like that either. You know, it's, uh, it's not synchronized. Mm-hmm. You, your fatigue as well as your high performance is certainly not synchronized with, um, the supplemental testosterone, which, which sort of echoes that. W- mm-hmm. Would you say there is less controversy because of female to male versus male to female globally? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, my whole experience has been very positive in triathlon and in life. And I recognize that is a huge, huge, um, amount of privilege that I've been given both, you know, and it, it's a, it's a variety of factors. It's, you know, I'm perceived as a straight white man now. And so, you know, where I was previously a, a queer androgynous, you know, woman who didn't identify as a woman, um, you know, masculine presenting woman. I'm now a straight white man. And so like both in, in navigating the world, in, in work situations in life, I'm given a lot of privilege and I, people don't question whether or not I'm trans when they meet me. So that's a privilege that I have as well. Um, but in sport, no one thought that I would be competitive with men. And so I really just got a lot of, you know, slaps on the butt and good job, go get them <laughs> when I, when I started. And even when I made the team that people have been very complimentary, very impressed that I've made the team and very supportive in USA triathlon and in the community at large, but transgender women do not experience that in sports and in life. Uh, for the most part, trans women are targeted exponentially higher rates than anyone else in the LGBTQ community. And I think in the sports world, it is even worse because there is this fear and it's a very sexist assumption about who will be a good athlete and People just automatically assume that uh, someone assigned male at birth will be a better athlete than someone assigned female at birth. And I think the trans women we've seen, you know, there have been very few positive stories of trans women athletes, um, and many of them stop participating in sports because the conditions are so bad. But anytime there's participation, there's, you know, huge, huge amounts of controversy about whether or not they belong competing with women. You were catapulted into the spotlight, I think, at an interesting time with the Nike commercial uh, right around the Olympics in 2016. It seemed to happen when there was this concurrent parallel explosion of awareness and uh, and hence controversy. Uh, what, what was the reaction to that? Uh, you, you were sort of riding the, the, the tidal wave of this sort of emergence of transgender and particularly transgender in sport so i'm very interested to know your the reaction that you had and and most importantly whether there was a difference between the reaction that you had sort of online or the reaction that you had in person yeah so online my personal policy is never read the comments (laughs) and and for the most part now you know comments have got the comment section has gotten much better than 2010 when i first came out um but I think in in person, I've had great experiences in sport. Um, I've had, I've certainly had challenges. I've been discriminated against. I've had people yell things and do things at races. Um, my my personal focus is is rarely around those negative experiences because I want to encourage everyone to be themselves. I'm you know trying to create more inclusive spaces and in, in athletics. And for me, that's just not my messaging of how I get there. But you know, I think that was a very interesting time because it was 2015 Make Team USA and Challenge the IOC policy, which came out publicly in 2016. And then I was naked in the body issue, which was a kind of a big deal. That was <laughs> and, a big deal. <laughs> and, and right after that came the Nike commercial. And, um, you know, so I think there was uh, certainly a heightened platform for me. Um, and also, Caitlyn Jenner had come out at, at the 2015 time range. Um, and even though she wasn't currently competing in the sports, her being a high profile Olympic athlete, um, you know, I think that, and also, um, you know, reality TV star made this huge explosion of increased awareness just around the word transgender and what it meant. And it was the first time we started to see positive representations in movies, in music and media, so there really, it really was just at that moment, that tipping point of saying I was, you know, sort of in the right place in the right time for, for media. Um, but I think that my reaction was largely positive. And like I said, it's that trans male privilege um, and male privilege and white privilege that I have that 
people didn't think that I was a threat in athletics. Um, people generally didn't see me as a threat in, in the world. And so I had a very positive experience, you know, largely, um, you know, aside from those sort of one-off experiences. The, the, that the, the fringe. What, what, uh, you know, one thing I'd love to do is to explore your performance alignment athletically with your life journey because you've gone particularly the advocacy and and everything that's sort of catapulted on that but what lessons have you taken from that journey in life and applied them to sport as an athlete that's interesting um you know i think one thing is that my performance got exponentially better when i could worry less about what people might be thinking about me or saying about me and worry more about my training and my, and my outcomes and my process. Um, you know, and I think that, that for me, when I, when I actually did come out and I think I was, I was a great athlete before, you know, in, on an amateur level in a, in my, you know, small town things I was doing. But I think when I, when I was open about my identity, when I was gained some confidence in being who I really am and just showing up, knowing like, this is me, I'm not worried about what people will say about me. I'm worried about how well I'm going to run and bike today. You know, that made the difference for me, that, that increased level of comfort, that not having to worry about what, um, you know, getting called out at the beginning of a race or, you know, stuff like that, that was the game changer for me. So I think, you know, that, that idea of authenticity of if I'm, if I'm bringing my full self to whatever I'm doing, I'm just going to be that much better at it because I'm more focused on it. And so that was really a big one for me. And I think that, um, you know, being oriented to the process and less about the outcome. And I know you're so big on this and I, I love every time that we talk about this because I think that I really worked myself up, um, initially in that first race to make Team USA, feeling the pressure of, you know, doing this for my community. And I certainly wanted to do it as a personal achievement and, and for my own, you know, goals, but feeling the weight of, you know, an entire group of people sort of riding on this moment. And that was all self-imposed pressure. And so I think I learned that, you know, I can just do the best that I can and it will impact people how it will impact people, but I have no control over that. Um, so that, that additional pressure and stress is actually not helpful for me. (laughs) I can be motivated by it, but it's not going to be, um, you know, a, a performance enhancer for me when it comes down to it. Oh, it's very common, and it's the is the positioning and how an athlete positions that type of uh, internal pressure and, and perceived external pressure, and how that relationship is formed that is either going to be a catalyst for performance enhancement or uh, performance decline. Ultimately, it, it, it strikes me, it, it, it's, and this bubbles up. You, you are clearly very strong. In advocacy, you're uh, uh, clearly have high leadership qualities. You're bold. Uh, I would say sort of fearless. Um, you've put yourself out there uh, as this opportunity is there. Does that mean that you're fearless as an athlete? It strikes me probably not. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. So much. I, you know, I, I have to say, I, I would consider myself a pretty nervous racer up until probably just recently. And um, you know, I, I think it's really easy as an athlete to get in my own head. And, you know, we all have these stories and narratives that we tell ourselves about why we're racing and what, what it means if we do or don't reach our time goals or our, you know, placement goals and things like that. And I think that I I can just get so wrapped up in it. And I've, I've really done a lot of work in the last year and a half to try to back off of that, to not be so focused on, you know, the, the placement, because it took me a long time to realize that actually, very few people actually care what place I came in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very few people care whether or not I reach my, um, you know, my BQ time or, or what have you. It's, it's really, um, those are our numbers and, and things that are important to me, but my family, my friends are going to love me no matter what. And, you know, I think it, I, I can get wrapped in that fear of what if I don't perform well and people are watching, um, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not nearly at the level of, of your pro athletes, right? But I think that knowing that the media is always there and that the internet is always there, I, I had this, I maintain this heightened sense of like really having to talk myself through what this all means and, and the importance of it and, and put things back into perspective. So, um, 
I, I certainly have, you know, self-doubt. And I often now have to talk myself into the understanding that I do belong. And I think that goes back to, you know, being a kid and feeling like I never really fit in and I never really belonged in certain spaces. And as a kid, I always felt like I belonged on the traveling team or on the all-stars or as the MVP. I think I was very clear in that. And somewhere along the line as an adult, we get our confidence sort of shaken from us. So in the last year and a half, it's taken a lot of mental energy and, um, you know, self-talk to say, no, I should be lining up at the, at the, at the starting line with the front runners because I'm that fast and I belong there. Um, you know, and so it, I think it's, for me, the the battle is mostly mental. I think <laughs> I understand. Uh, uh, we are going to go to the quick fire round, uh, something that we do with every guest. But just before we do, I I, I want to go broader reach. I want to ask your opinion on uh, on a um, on an athlete uh, because I think listeners would be interested in your opinion as uh, mm-hmm. as a trans man yourself. So uh, I'd like to ask you your thoughts on. Casta Semenya, who I'm sure you know, the South African 800 or middle distance runner, um, with the assumption that, that you know her pretty well, I'm assuming that you, you've followed her. I'm going to let you frame her story and, and give us your thoughts on the controversy. Yeah, so Casta Semenya is a South African runner. Um, she um, sort of came on to the, our radar probably 2014, I'd say. Uh, she is she is a female racer um, who I believe is intersex and or or has I'm sorry um, elevated levels of testosterone and that's really the controversy around her is the elevated levels of testosterone. She was winning races and um, with that were was called out by competitors questioning her gender. Um, so there were these sort of archaic um, sex tests that were taking place to test her chromosomes and her testosterone levels and, you know, really invasive stuff to determine whether or not she belonged competing with women. Um, you know, it has resulted in IAAF policy change, which bans certain levels of testosterone from just a few races, all of which are the races that Castor Semenya races in, um, which is, uh, you know, really outlandish that an organization would change a policy um, specific to just a portion of their runners. Um, it was very clearly targeted at her. And it's super interesting. I think, um, you know, just the broad perspective is that she was targeted because she's a person of color and because she presents very masculinely. And so it was very much based on people's ideas of what a female athlete should look like. Um, you know, she's muscular. She's, um, she is a strong athlete. And people put those two together to say that she was not a woman. Um, you know, I think it's it's all of this is rooted in gender presentation ideas and and racism, in my opinion. I we we have seen white female athletes, um, Katie Ledecky comes to mind, who have dominated in their sports. In in 2016, Katie Ledecky was beating competitors so badly that they weren't on the TV screen with her <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and no one questioned her gender and no one called her out about potentially not being a woman. And so, you know, I think it was just a really targeted attack on her. Um, she has been an incredibly strong athlete to just uh, ignore and stay out of the sort of controversy herself and really focus on her, on her running and just being an athlete. So um, yeah, 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 we yeah. don't see that sort of controversy around trans men. <laughs> and, um, you know, Castor Semenya is not transgender, but um, the parallels between gender expectations are pretty, you know, run pretty close. And I tell you what, say what say what you want, have the opinion that you want. It is quite remarkable performance and mental uh, resilience uh, for her to be able to uh, stay focused and stay performing. I mean, the, the, yeah, the external absolutely. and the media glare and, and, you know, particularly around the world, I would say, not, not just in a home country of South Africa, but certainly in Europe where track and field is a, a very large sport and in other parts of the world, the, the media glare was quite staggering on her. And um, mm-hmm. to, to be able to just stay focused with that, I mean, I, I'm assuming that she's got a, a very nurturing, great support crew about her, but that is a... Uh, that is a clear indication of a very elite performance from the psychological standpoint. I'll tell you that much, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think we are going to see more cases, both like casters and like mine 
and trans women in sports at a high level in, you know, in the, I would say within the next two Olympic cycles that we will be seeing um, more controversy around where, um, where we belong in sports. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a little bit like the world West, wild West, isn't it? In some ways, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. to, uh, it's, uh, it really is. Um, okay. So we are going to go through and we're going to do something that we always do. Now, this is going to be really, really tough for you. It's tough for most of our guests because I'm going to ask you to do this with, um, one word or one sentence and. <laughs> I think above all other, you are a wordy man. I promise you this. So, uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so what, what you have to do is you have to a- answer the questions and, uh, and they're going to be set. So you, uh, you fasten your seatbelt. Are you ready to go on these questions? All right. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Number one. What is the biggest challenge time starved high performers face? Adequate recovery. What's your number one performance habit to help daily energy? Sleep. Training. Do you listen to music, focus on the task, or troubleshoot work problems? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to say that. If you're going to say focus <laughs> on the task and say, you little liar. <laughs> Here's a great one for you. What do you wish you had more of? Hmm. Um people to train with oh and then the next question is going to be easy training fly solo or surround yourself with a crowd it's always solo it's always solo and it's uh you wish it wasn't yeah name one to two characteristics of an elite performer doesn't need to be athletic just an elite performer uh relentless persistent another great one for you who has been your biggest mentor laverne cox awesome and considering that you, you traveled 155 days last year, I believe, um, give me your number one tip for travel. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. That's super one. Chris, I, I want to thank you. It's, as I hoped, interesting, educational, inspirational. And um, I want to wish you the best of luck this season. Have a, have a great rest of time at the Olympic Training Center. But let's uh, go forth and conquer for the rest of the year. And at this, uh, at the end of this podcast, we're going to put together some materials uh, at the free resources page, a purple patch, where you can go and find out more about transgender athlete issues, and uh, as well as your your uh, website, Chris. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add in there for uh, for any sort of giveaway or educational information for people? I'll, I'll hook you up with some resources, but I think. You, you've mentioned I'm wordy, so I think I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, thank you very much for being a Purple Patch athlete. I think, and best of luck for the rest of the year. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you've done for me, Matt. I, I really appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. Good stuff. Well, all I can say, Chris, is thank you so much. What a great and thoroughly enjoyable interview for me. And I hope that you guys at home found it really interesting. As promised, Chris has sent along a whole bunch of great resources in conjunction with his interview. So in addition to having some links in the show notes, there's a resource page at purplepatchfitness.com forward slash transgender athlete. That's purplepatchfitness.com. You guys know the URL, but forward slash transgender athlete so make sure you head there head to the resources get educated and keep it simple guys we're all in this together take care